when I look back to 2008 and I was that little girl at home watching the Paralympics on the TV to then like that 18 year old girl competing in a Paralympics, like as cliche as it sounds, like it was a dream come true. Something that I dreamed about putting on the green and gold and representing Australia. And like, it's truly one of the best experiences that like I'll ever have competing in a Paralympic. Hey, hey, welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. I am your host, Jackie Tan, and I'm so grateful you've joined me today. This show is all about human performance. I chat with experts, athletes, coaches on tips, tools, and strategies to help you discover your extraordinary potential and perform at your best. And before we get into the show, if you are a long time listener and you love the show, I would really appreciate you leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And I believe you can now do that on Spotify. Ratings and reviews are the best way to support this podcast and help me reach even more people. So I would really appreciate that. Now on to the show. And today on the show, I chat with two-time Paralympian long jumper Sarah Walsh. Sarah made her international debut at only 15 years of age. Her first Paralympics, Rio, at the age of 18, she jumped 4.82 meters, coming in sixth place. And recently at the Tokyo Paralympics, having jumped further with a jump of 5.11 meters, that landed her in seventh place. She just keeps getting better and better. And if she's not on your radar, she should be. We chat about fibula hemimelia and what growing up with a prosthetic leg was like, her love of sport growing up and her dream to become a Paralympian, her passion to get better for Paris and the importance of people with disabilities being at the forefront of mainstream media and getting the representation and equality they deserve. We also chat about her ambassadorship with an incredible organization, Lifeline, providing all Australians experiencing a personal crisis with access to 24 hours crisis support. Sarah is so humble and kind and it was so much fun chatting with her. We also dive deep into her long jump routine, which is super fascinating. So without further ado, let's dive straight in with Sarah Walsh. Sarah, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. You are a two-time Paralympian, and I dare say that figure is going to grow. <laughs> you recently came first in the Oceania Championships in the long jump, and and I can't wait to just dive into what it takes to be an elite long jumper. But before we do, you were born with fibula hemimelia. Can you tell us what that is and what that meant for you in terms of how you grew up, you had a prosthetic leg. Um, tell us about your upbringing. So I was born with a condition called fibula hemimelia, which essentially just means that when I was born, I was missing part of um, my leg on my right side. Um, 
you don't know too much about how legs are supposed to form. You're supposed to have two bones below your knee, a foot with five toes. Um, I was born missing one bone below my knee and my foot didn't really form properly, didn't have all of its toes. So when I was born, my parents were presented with two options, um, amputate my foot as soon as I could pretty much start walking and wear a prosthetic for the rest of my life. Or the other option is to go through limb lengthening and it's kind of like multiple surgeries throughout your childhood up until you stop growing in the hopes that they can like lengthen the bone and the foot that was there um, to make it kind of the same length as your other one. So for my quality of life and being able to live the best life that I could, my parents chose amputation and I had my foot amputated when I was 18 months old, won a prosthetic leg ever since, and I don't know any difference. So I guess my childhood was relatively normal. Um, I'm the eldest of three girls. So like I was always involved with the sport that my sisters were playing or the sport that my friends were doing. And like, I don't know any difference. So when I look at like my friends and their childhood, mine looked pretty similar to that as well. Just the fact that I had a prosthetic leg. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, that's all you know. But, you know, when you looked at other children growing up and, and they don't have a prosthetic leg, did that, did you ever question about what, why that was for you? Not really. I guess, like, I always knew that I was different, but I also knew that, like, my difference was my strength. When I started school, I remember everyone wanted to be friends with the girl with one leg and I thought that was so cool. Like they thought it was the best thing in the world. So it was never something that like I had to hide or shy away from. It was something that was always accepted by everyone around me. So I just like always knew that like everyone was different in their own way. My difference was like a little bit more obvious than anyone else's, but like it was something that was always accepted and embraced by everyone around me, which is something I'm super grateful for because I know a lot of people don't have that support network around them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, did you find whether there were any disadvantages um, growing up in terms of your sport or uh, opportunities there? Um, not really. I guess like when I was playing sport against my friends at school or classmates, like I was never the one that was crossing the line first or being the best in the class, but it was never something that I was like concerned or worried about. Like uh, my parents always encouraged me to get out there and give everything a go. And they put me in many sports when I was younger. Like I swam from like before I had my amputation up until I was like 12 years old. And like swimming is not for me these days. But, like, <laughs> that was something they encouraged me to do because it was super important to learn to swim. And like I did gymnastics for 12 years as well. Still can't do a handstand or a cartwheel to save my life. Like that's nothing to do with my prosthetic leg. That's just me. <laughs> Um, but the only like sport that I really struggled with or kind of thought like my leg is kind of stopping me from doing this was dancing. And it just got to the point where like as I got a little bit older and like dance moves got a little bit harder and dances got a bit faster, I was finding that I was like struggling to like get up and down off the ground as quick as everyone else. Or the thing that I told my mum that I wanted to stop dancing because of was the fact that I couldn't point my right toes and that's my prosthetic leg. And like, no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be able to point legs that are made of carbon fiber and metal. But mum was like, okay, but like I've paid for the rest of the term. So like you're sticking it out. And that was kind of like the only thing where I was like, oh, this like maybe this prosthetic thing is kind of like a bad thing, I guess, or like impeding me from reaching my potential. But let's be realistic. My potential 
was never going to be in dancing when I look back in the videos like I was so out of time rhythm was nothing <laughs> so like pointing my toes wasn't the problem <laughs> did you did it get any better for you did you find that it eventually was any um, better no, like I'm still not a great dancer today <laughs> so like my career in dancing ended when I was about eight years old but like when I look back on it now it's not something that I'm like oh I really should have like just pursued that I look back on it now I'm like good thing you hung up <laughs> dancing shoes when you did <laughs> did you learn to eventually enjoy it though yeah like it wasn't something that I like hated going to. It was something that my friends did. So I really loved it. But I was like, if I have to like give something up and mm. if I want to try like something else after school, like I'm going to throw in the bag for dancing. And like, <laughs> my sisters danced throughout their childhood up until like they finished high school. And when I went and watched their concerts, like dancing was not for me. Like it was a struggle to sit and watch them. So it wasn't something that I was missing out on, but like looking back on it now. The fact that like I couldn't point my toes was the reason I gave mum for wanting to give up was like pretty pathetic. <laughs> yeah, she's like, no shit, Sarah. Yeah, still can't do that, Sarah. You can sit <laughs> and try all you want, but it's not going right. to happen. <laughs> so tell us about your inspiration. Like who are your biggest influences, I guess, on your career and, and even that mindset about keeping on going? I guess like first and foremost my parents like they were the ones that like encouraged me to get out there and give everything a go they weren't going to sit on the sideline and be like yeah we know you can't point your toes Sarah but like we're still going to send you to dancing like yeah. they never once said like you can't do that like they let me figure it out for myself the only sport that like mum said that I couldn't continue with anymore was netball because it got to the point where um, like netball changed from after school to early Saturday morning and we're not morning people in our households. And mum said, I'm not getting up at <laughs> 7 o'clock in the winter to take you to netball. That That's fair. ended my netball career pretty quickly. But like I look back now, wasn't going to be a netball player anyway. So like they were the ones that always encouraged me and were there to support me and like say, you know what, like you can do it, but you might not be as good as everyone else. But like one day, maybe you'll find like that sport or that thing that you're passionate about. So like they were the ones that were there from early on. And I guess then like as I've gotten older and been a part of the Australian team, like the people I'm surrounded by every day, whether it's like at the track training or in the gym doing gym work, like they're the best athletes in the world at what they do. And it's really incredible to be able to train alongside those type of people and learn from them and learn from their experiences and just have there's people to support you in your life. And then my coach, Matt Beckenham, these days, he's really important to get the best out of me as an athlete. But I've also had many coaches throughout my career and they've all played pivotal roles at that point in time that they coached me, whether it was my first coach who taught me the basics of athletics or the coach that took me to my first Paralympics. Like they're all really special and have taught me so many things along the way. And like without all those people, whether they're in my life now, like they've shaped me into the athlete that I am. Yeah, that's it. Everyone has a part to play in your life, no matter how short or how long they're in your life. Um, so tell us about that journey into becoming a, a long jumper. You, you said you 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 play or you grew, grew up playing different sports. Um, how did you eventually get into long jump? Yeah, I guess athletics wasn't like, the sport that I was doing. Um, I never did a little athletics um, or anything like that. It was just kind of, I was in year three 
um, school athletics carnival, just like you'd have every year, came dead last against my classmates. We just had a ball, like you were there having fun, day off school, didn't have to do too much. And then um, after that, my a teacher came up to me one day um, after school and said, oh, here's a letter, you're off to the zone athletics carnival, like take it home, get your mum and dad to sign it, bring it back. And I just like, why? Like, why are you sending me to the athletics carnival? Like I came last against everyone else. And I kind of found out that there was a section just for para athletes. And because I was missing a leg, that was the events that I could go in. And this teacher had entered me in the 100, the 200, the long jump and the shot put. Like, I didn't have a choice. And of course I said, yes, like it was another day of school and little did I know like a few years later found out that her intentions were she was going to send me I was going to come home with four gold medals and that would put our school on the top of the medal tally and we'd like win but like things like that I didn't realize back then but now I do and little did I know that one day that I took off school because I wanted to go and have fun and the one day that she told me to take the day off school so I could win medals for my school was the start of my athletics career and at the time I could barely run 100 metres, let alone 200 metres. I'm not the strongest person upper body, so shot put was just stupid of me to do and, like, wasn't very coordinated either. So long jump was just there for a bit of fun and I didn't have the right equipment to be, like, doing athletics. I was just running on my everyday leg, which wasn't designed for that. It's pretty much designed for getting me around from point A to B at walking speed. Like, no training, no experience in the sport, but, like, that was where it all started and eventually found myself an athletics coach, joined a little layers club, which is kind of like the backwards thing of how people would expect your athletics career to start out. Like you'd kind of be doing that from a young age. And then uh, a couple of years later was gifted a running blade that I'd only ever seen on the TV at the Paralympic Games that like the best athletes in the world were using. And that was kind of the point as a 11 year old girl where I was like, hang on a minute, I could actually be good at this. Like this could be the sport that I could do like I've got the right equipment don't need to worry about pointing my toes like this is probably for me but like at the time I was still running 100 meters 200 meters gave up the shot put and then was just doing long jump on the side for fun and I always kind of thought that if I was going to go to the Paralympics back then it would be as a sprinter but little did I know that long jump was going to be the path that was going to get me to those major championships. Yeah. And so tell us about that transition. Like how, at what point did you go 100 and 200 metres not working out, but it's time to pursue long jump? Um, It was kind of like a funny transition, I guess. In 2014, I was 15 years old and I'd received an email to say that I was invited to compete overseas in my first athletics competition as a lead up event to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. And it was in the long jump. And it was kind of something that I never really thought about like pursuing properly before. Like I'd kind of done like one long jump training session of an afternoon, like after my sprint stuff. And like, I was just doing it for fun. And it kind of made me realize then, like if I wanted to represent Australia and I wanted a career in this, like long jump was the sport that I was going to do that in. And like, whilst you need to be fast or have speed to do long jump. I don't need to run 200 metres. And I look back now and I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not a sprinter. <laughs> like, I absolutely love long jump. And, like, it's my favourite thing to do. And, like, it's the sport that I love the most and the one that I'm the best at. So it was kind of like a transition that I didn't really see coming, but I'm so glad, like, it happened then. 
Yeah. And so what was that conversation like? Was that with your parents first or coach, I, I want to be a long jumper and I'm going to go to the Paralympics? Like what, what was uh, that like? I guess like the Paralympics dream kind of started like in 2008. I remember watching the Beijing Paralympics on the TV as like a 10 year old girl and being like, when I grow up, I want to be a Paralympian. Yes. But, like, back then I didn't know what sport I'd be good at or like what sport to pursue but I just kind of knew that I wanted to put on the green and gold and represent Australia. So I guess like it's been a slow journey to get to that point, but like it was kind of like a natural thing where I fell in love with track and field and then long jump was kind of the sport that I was going to do. But like the conversation around long jump kind of happened as like, well, you're going to represent Australia in long jump. And like I competed in that over there and came back and was like realistically, like if you want to keep doing this, like long jump's the way to go. And, like, it wasn't something where I was like, no, I don't think. Like, I just want to solely focus on long jump. I was kind of like, yeah, I think this is, like, for me, like, putting on the green and gold and representing Australia in long jump just felt right and perfect. And in that moment, it was the best. So, like, I wanted that feeling over and over again. Yeah, brilliant. Tell us about looking back over everything you've experienced so far. Have there been setbacks that you've experienced that have, I guess, in hindsight, helped you build resilience? Um, yes and no. Like, I'm so lucky and fortunate that I've never been injured and I've never had to overcome, like, a major injury in my career, which is kind of unheard of. I guess I've always, like, I started in the sport so young and I had people around me who trained me as, like, an 11, 12-year-old girl and then trained me as a 14, 15-year-old girl who knew that, like, I didn't need to be in the gym lifting heavy weights at that age. Like I just needed to naturally get stronger and fitter. And like I was always surrounded by amazing physios and doctors and coaches who like treated me for the person that I was at that point in time, which has definitely helped me, I guess, stay in the sport, but also stay injury free. But like, I think for me, like the biggest challenge in the past few years has definitely been COVID the postponement of the Paralympic Games with Tokyo, like I look back on it now and it's like you can smile and laugh about it, but in the moment it was kind of like, like what now? Like is the Games even actually going to happen in 18 months' time? And I remember when it first got announced or like COVID first kind of came into Australia um, saying to like people around me, oh, they can't cancel the Paralympic Games. Like, that's, that's the biggest thing ever. Like you're so selfish as an athlete and you forget that like the rest of the world is still around you and you're like no no it's the biggest thing in the world like you can't cancel that and then all of a sudden I was like yeah we can and like we are going to so it's kind of like a strange time and then even leading into the games we still didn't know if they were going ahead and I guess that was really hard training for a goal that maybe wasn't actually going to happen but like it, it definitely made me a stronger athlete and I use the time to like the best of my abilities, like to become fitter, faster and stronger knowing that like the postponement was actually a good thing in the long run. But like, it was a long stretch of like no international competitions and like everything that was going on in the world. Like it was hard to keep mm. training knowing that like you couldn't see your family or like you didn't know like if there was competition actually gonna happen next week. So that's probably been like the biggest challenge recently. Yeah. And and even though, there, you know, you had a date, there was a postponement, all that uncertainty around it, not knowing whether actually it would go ahead, it must have just, 
yeah, played on your mind. How did you then, I guess, keep your spirits up and the motivation up to keep training for something that was you weren't sure was actually going to happen? I guess for me, like when we first went into lockdown, like the training then kind of became fun and a bit different. Like I was doing gym at home, so I was trying new things and improvising. And so like that first period became fun and something different. And like, I'd look forward to going to the track and having a run. Like that was the highlight of my day. But it also made me realize that whilst I absolutely love putting on the green and gold and representing Australia, that's not why I do what I do. Like I'm very lucky to have those opportunities, but I do what I do because I love it. So like if the goalposts kept moving or changing or being taken away from me, like it didn't affect me that much because I was doing what I loved and going to the track and training to me is just as special and important as putting on the green and gold. So like, I guess knowing like that things can be taken away from you so quickly, but I always had that one constant thing of being able to go to training, which is what I love to do, which kind of helped me gradually get through the whole process of COVID. Yeah. Brilliant. So tell us about the training because I mean, I, when someone says I'm a runner, we well, can sort of figure out what training looks like for yeah. a runner, but, but a long jumper, take us through that. What, what does training look like for a long jumper? I guess like it's pretty similar to a runner, I guess. Or like what we do is kind of similar, except for the fact that like you, got to you jump, jump really far. <laughs> normally I describe long jump as like, oh, you just run and then you jump into the sandpit. But like, it's a little bit more than that. So for me, my training is six days a week. You can normally have one day off. It kind of depends like what point in the season, I guess, we're in. Um, I usually am at the track Monday, Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. Um, two like sprint sessions a week or speed endurance as much as like long jump is a really technical sport. You also do need to carry a little bit of speed to be able to help you jump further. Um, I normally do two gym sessions a week working on the strength and then two like long jump sessions where where that might be like running, jumping into the sandpit or like plyometric stuff to build stiffness in my legs. And then on top of that, I also do like prehab exercises to make sure like the points that I'm weaker in are being targeted and just to make sure that I stay injury free. So like it's pretty similar, I guess, to a lot of other sports, but like my long jump sessions are a lot more technical, solely focused on jumping, whereas like a speed session is just pure running on the track. Yeah. And do you leave the jumping stuff to the long jump training sessions or do you do any, I know you said plyometrics, but do you do any explosive stuff in the gym at all with your strength training? Um, A little bit. So like I've kind of been able to design exercises that are kind of beneficial to my long jump or a bit more technical to what I do to be able to like I guess reiterate that I'm very much someone that if I just do the same thing hundreds and hundreds of times over that's how I learn so like doing certain exercises in the gym whether that may may be like standing on a box and jumping on a crash mat and practicing my landing technique eventually translates over into like my actual long jump or like holding positions that I do in long jump off a rope or with a band, things like that eventually transition over into my long jump. So I do a little bit of long jump based exercises that we've kind of like made up 
on the spot that like help me that then translate over into long jump but I also like going to the gym and do like single leg squats hammy bridges like things that normal gym exercises that most athletes would do to build their strength because that's also important to me yeah absolutely and you said um you know in terms of the technicalities of the of the sport you, you even said the technical the you know how to to land i didn't know there was even technique for landing but take us through the the technicalities of long jump i guess it kind of all starts with like you're standing on the top of the runway and the first bit is to like run and set yourself up for a good run so you want to run like as fast as you can for a certain point in time but then it gets to a point where you need to like transition into preparing to jump so you don't want to like slow down or speed up but you want to get your body in the correct position I guess to jump um so for me that's normally like 10 meters out from the board I start like thinking about okay need to prepare to jump and then um your penultimate step should be like a heel strike or a flat foot to lower the center of your mass for your body to be able to get a better jump or get a better hit off the board and then for me, I guess like you get to the board, I jump off my blade. So that foot that I take off, you want to make sure that you're not fouling as well, big part of long jump. And then I do a technique that's called the hitch, which is essentially just like running through the air. Um, and that in itself is a very technical, I guess, thing to learn. And for me, COVID was actually a positive thing to happen because it made me realize that we could change my technique. So we spent the time of COVID and the postponement of the game, changing my long jump technique to a hitch, which has now proved beneficial. And then landing in the pit, I have a tendency to drop my blade, which is a little bit annoying and you lose like many centimeters off that if it lands behind the rest of your body. So the jump is measured from the point in the sand that's closest to the board. So if I drop my blade and the rest of my body lands 30 centimetres in front of that. Um, my jump is 30 centimetres less than what it should be. So landing in the pit with like both legs together and not dropping my blade earlier than the rest of my body is really important. So then that's why exercises in the gym, like practising landing and keeping my legs up, hopefully will translate over into doing that. So it's very like technical and each part can be broken down into so many small pieces for then essentially me to run and jump into the sandpit. Yeah, let's let's go there. You said you kind of prepare with 10 meters to go. So how long is the running? So I my run up is around about 31 meters. So you start running like as fast as you can, I guess is the easiest way to put it. And then preparing and like starting the board. Like I'm normally pretty good with knowing like where I am in the run up like whether I'll be over the board, behind the board, short of the board, and then like start preparing in that, like, I guess, 10 metres or so. Like what do I need to do to be perfect on the board Mm. to be able to jump as far as I can? So it's such a technical sport and there's so many little things that you're doing like on the run-up and like steering yourself so you're on the board. Like I absolutely love that it's so technical, but when you break it down some days at training, you do just find that your brain is in overdrive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's it. And you said the run up for you is, do you say 31 meters? Yeah. So can that change? Um, Does everyone have a different? Yeah. So the long jump run up itself is just over 40 meters long, I think. So 
you can put a mark wherever on the runway and start from there. So like if someone wanted to start from 39 metres back, go for it. If someone wanted to start at 20 metres from the board, go for it. As long as you're on the runway, you can start from wherever you want. Oh, okay. And so how did you come up with 31 metres? Um, what was it about that for you? Just through like trial and error, I guess, and a lot of like biomechanical stuff that we've been working on. And um, it was kind of the point where you don't want to be running flat out as soon as you hit the board. You want to be running flat out about three or four metres behind the board. So you want to have already reached your top speed. So then to be able to hold that for a few metres to then jump. So that was kind of the point where we, when we um, looked at biomech footage and we realised that my top speed was at X amount of metres and, like, that run up should be pretty good in, like, me being able to run as fast as I can and hold that and then jump. So it's very, like, technical even behind the scenes. Like, yeah. that's not something that I just decided today I'm going to start from <laughs> yeah. 31 metres. That's lucky number. Like, that's, that's like... The biomech team that I work with at the AIS, that was like their recommendation. And then it's just finding like the point in and around that. Like some days it might be 31 meters and 20 centimeters, or some days it might be 31 meters and 70 centimeters. It just like depends on like how fresh I'm feeling after a gym session the day before or how much wind there is, whether it's a headwind or a tailwind. So it's so like technical and so many like different parts to think about before you even start your run. But like yeah. best. That's crazy. I mean, you say 31 meters and 20 centimeters. It's like, that, <laughs> does that make a difference? Like yeah. it sounds so little, but obviously yeah. it plays a huge part. Yeah, absolutely. Like even the slightest amount of headwind or tailwind can really like affect your performance. And they're all things like when athletes stand on the top of the runway at long jump, you're feeling for the wind. There's always a wind sock. You're looking to see like how strong the wind is. And then just know, like, if it's pretty gusty, you've got to go back. Or if it's blowing in my face a lot, I need to go forward. Or it's like, maybe I just stay where I am and push a little bit harder when I'm running. Like, there's so many, like, things you need to think about before you actually start the running process. Yeah. Wow. And did you, how did you decide that you would hit the line on the blade and not your foot? Um, It was kind of something that I've always jumped off my blade, I guess. Everyone that I compete against on an international level and pretty much every amputee that uses a blade and does long jump jumps off their blade. There's no, like, scientific research that says jumping off a blade is going to throw you further than jumping <laughs> off a real leg. Um, but it's just kind of like everyone else does that. And, like, I have tried to jump off my good leg in the past and, like, if you saw me doing that, you'd question like how I'm a long jumper. Like when I said I'm not very coordinated when I was 10 years old, like I really mean I'm not. It's carried through. <laughs> yeah. So like it's just like what everyone kind of does and still does and like if that's going to put me in the furthest position in the sandpit, like that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you said you changed your technique in the air. How, how many air techniques are there? there's probably no number of techniques or like there's no right or wrong technique for people to use like the technique that I used before was essentially like run jump and just like hold in the air for as long as I could and then hit the sand whereas this 
technique that I'm doing now, the hitch, is probably a bit more technical than like what I was doing before. And there's a lot more components to it. But it was also kind of like my body was starting to naturally do things like similar to that and it needed something to do while it was in the air. Like I was finding that like whilst I could jump five and a half metres fine with my old technique, like my legs wanted something to do while my arms were kind of doing certain movements that kind of resemble the technique that I do now. So it's just kind of like a natural progression whilst the technique itself wasn't very natural to start out with. And I looked like a full most training session for months on end. Eventually one day, like your brain switches and the lights come on and they realise that like this is what you're doing and you can do it now. Like it took a while to get to that point. But now, like I don't think I could go back to my old technique and feel natural and comfortable. Like now I hitch and like it's just a natural thing. Like you don't think about it. But at the start, it was like constantly thinking about every movement which is mentally draining, more than physically draining. Totally. And so I guess that becomes way more efficient when you're doing something that feels good as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like I was leaving training after doing maybe like eight or ten jumps and like I was absolutely exhausted. Like my body could have kept going, but my mind was like, I just can't think anymore. Like everything that like it's been told to do for ten years, I'm trying to tell it to do the opposite of it or movements or cues that were like similar to what I'd been doing in the past had a completely different meaning. And like my brain had just had it until one day it decided that this is happening and we're going to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and much better for it. Yes. <laughs> do you have, yeah. Do you, do you have a ritual when you go into your, I mean, I've seen lots of different athletes do different things before they um, go to compete at their, their event. Do you have a ritual that, that you do? Not really. I guess like I'm not really a superstitious person or anything like that. And I guess there's so many variables in a long jump competition, the time of day that it's on, how many people are competing. Um, something that I have noticed that I do like not consciously but like when I'm about to run, I always like twiggle my fingers like when I'm down in the position to start running. And it's something that I've been doing for like years. I look back on videos of me as like a young athlete and whatever I do, I just move my fingers. Yes, I've seen that. And I start running and it's not something that I think about doing, but it was, it got to a point where I was like looking and analyzing my jumps. Like, why am I doing this? And it's like something that I still do, but like, it's not, I'm not there like, oh, remember to twiggle your fingers because you're going to jump further. Like it just happens naturally. So like, that's probably a ritual that I do without actually knowing that I continuously do it. Have you ever caught yourself doing the little finger thing in anything else in no. life? No, it's just no. your prep. Yeah. Wow. Like I get down in the position to start running and the arm that's like up in the air just moves its fingers. And I think it's in the same pattern. Like I have no, it's not like I'm musical or anything. Like I'm playing the piano. It just, <laughs> yeah. it just happens. <laughs> that's brilliant. Love it. So tell us about post-competition routine do you have one do you go straight into an ice bath are you eating a big meal like how do you yeah come off post-competition do you review and reflect what does it look like I guess like each competition is different like competing here in Australia during the summer season like we have comps pretty much every weekend back to back so it's not like something where you like 
have a comp and then go out and celebrate for the rest of the weekend if you've jumped well because in six days time like you've got to be back out on the pit doing it again um I always do kind of like review like my jumps um like see what I did and like all the technical things in it I guess but like sometimes that can happen like during competition as well like my coach will always record the videos and athletes are allowed to see the footage of their jumps during competition so after I've jumped I can look at the footage of what I've just done before and like some days some jumps you just don't want to see ever again they're that bad but then like the ones that are good I like to review them and see like what made it good but then like big major competitions like Tokyo or Rio they're kind of like the competitions where after you like it's done like I can finally relax and enjoy myself and after Rio I just got back into the village after my competition hadn't even made it into the team building and two of my teammates were heading down to the McDonald's in the village and (sighs) my coach actually took my bags back up to my room and I just went straight to McDonald's and like I don't eat McDonald's in the first place it's not something that I crave during the week but all of a sudden there I was stuffing my face chicken nuggets (laughs) and chips and then after Tokyo as well not so much McDonald's but caramello koalas and sour patch kids were my lunch after I competed so I definitely do like to indulge after big major competitions oh well deserved (laughs) that's for sure you said that you can review during a competition and so the jumps that you never want to see again are you able to look at that and go okay I I need to do that differently clean that up like how do you take that into the next jump yeah I guess for like the reason that I love long jumps so much is like if you do have a bad jump or you do want to improve like you've got that opportunity like if you're in the top eight you get six jumps every competition And I guess, like, there's some jumps where, like, I can go off feeling where I'm like, that was rubbish. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, I know what I did wrong. I know what I need to improve on. But then sometimes there's, like, just super subtle things that you can only kind of see when you look back on slow-mo footage. And it could be, like, something so small that to, like, the naked eye, no one would realise that, like, you've done that wrong or it wasn't as good as what it should be. But, like, to a long jumper and to my coach, like, they're the things that can make me jump five metres or they're the things that can make me jump five metres 50. So it's such a fine balance between that. But, like, um, everyone has the opportunity to be able to look at their footage during a competition. So my coach just records it on his phone. The athlete themselves aren't allowed to touch the device that it was recorded on, but my coach can show me, like, the jump itself, play it back within five seconds of me getting out of the pit we both decide like what needs to be improved on or like what I did good. And then it's just kind of like go back, mentally reset for the next jump and know that like whatever happened the jump before, like doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen the next one. Like it's a clean slate again. Yeah. And it must be so awesome. Like if you feel like you've had a good jump and then your coach can go, oh, there's this little thing that you could prove. I mean, they're gold nuggets, aren't they? They're the one percenters yeah. where you can go, oh, great, let's let's try and get a bit further with that. Yeah, absolutely, especially in long jump where it is so technical. Like sometimes it's like you just reach for the board ever so slightly, which then puts you in a bad position to be able to get like the most out of my blade to jump 
which can cost you like so many centimetres or mm. dropping my blade on landing. If I just held it up a little bit more, there's a few centimetres there. And it's just kind of all about like gaining those extra centimetres and it is like the little one percenters and to be able to like watch back straight away or like know straight away what it is that like costs you those one percenters or what it was that like you gain those one percenters from is so like valuable, especially yeah. in a competition. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your first big competition, Paralympic Games, Rio. You were 18. What, when you look back on that, what do you take from that? Like, how did that experience feel and how did that fuel you as well going going forward? I guess like when I look back to 2008 and I was that little girl at home watching the Paralympics on the TV to then like that 18 year old girl competing at a Paralympics, like as cliche as it sounds, like it was a dream come true. Something that I dreamed about putting on the green and gold and representing Australia. And like, it's truly one of the best experiences that like I'll ever have competing at a Paralympics. And I never take that moment for granted, but like Rio was incredible. Like as an 18 year old girl, like, I knew I went there for the experience, like it's my first Paralympic Games. I'd had a world championships the year before, but it's just kind of like absorbing everything in as much as you possibly can. And like I knew leading into Rio that um, I was in like the best shape of my life at the time and I didn't quite execute like the things that I wanted to on the day. So I fell short of like the distance that I was capable of jumping. And I remember like finishing the competition talking to Channel 7 Media and, like, walking out and meeting my coach at the time. And he was trying to tell me, like, oh, like, all the things that you did good, like, technically and, like, what we can improve on going forward. And I just turned to him and said, look, I don't really care, like, what you have to say right now. I just became a Paralympian. And that to me means more than any medal, any distance, any placing. Like, I get to call myself a Paralympian for the rest of my life from that moment in time. And it was something that I'd always dreamed of doing. And, like, I just broke down in tears because the whole, like, lead up to that is so emotional. And, like, to know that I'd finally achieved that goal after, like, hours and hours of training and hours and hours of, like, missing things with my family or friends, like, all the sacrifices that you make along the way in that moment, they're, like, so worth it. And I wouldn't change, like, anything else in the world for that. And it was just, like, such an incredible moment and, like, something that definitely fueled the fire then going forward. I knew that, like, that wasn't going to be my last Paralympics. I wanted more. I wanted to put on the green and gold more. Like, when you're out there doing it, it all just happens so quickly and sometimes you forget that, like, you're at a Paralympic Games and then when it's over, you're kind of like, what now? Like, what's next? You're always focusing on, like, what's to come. And, like, for me, competing in Rio was just kind of, like, the stepping stone of my career or the start of my career exactly and I really love that like just saying to your coach actually no I'm really proud of where I am it really brings you back to the moment because you can always look back at all the things that you can improve on but really I guess being in that moment and, and enjoying it is so important as well yeah absolutely like as athletes we're always so hard on ourselves and wanting more and wanting the best but I think we also need to appreciate like what we've got and what we've done like sixth place at a Paralympic Games as an 18 year old is pretty incredible and 
like to savor that moment was something that I really wanted to do and something that I'd worked really hard to do as well. But then like I could have turned it around and said, look, it was horrible. Like I didn't jump as far as I wanted to. Like what's the point of being here? But that thought process was never something that crossed my mind. Like I was competing at a Paralympic Games, which is what I dreamed of doing. So nothing was going to dampen my day that day. Yeah, absolutely. So good to hear that. Next one came Tokyo. You came seventh with 5.11. So in Rio, you jumped 4.82. Tokyo, 5.11. Yep. Recently, the Oceania Championships, 5.59. Oh, sorry, 5.38. Your personal yes. best is 5.59. Four nine. Four nine. Yes. Almost. <laughs> Did you? How much better can you get? Like, what is the goal for you in your career? Um, I don't really like have a distance as such that I'm like, I'm so capable to jump this or like there's a certain like distance that I have to jump and then like I'll be happy in my career. Like, I guess for me, like it's just kind of a natural progression or like continually to be better. Like you can go months or years without jumping a PB. And like, that's okay in sport. Like it happens to every athlete. But I guess for me, like, I'm still pretty young compared to the girls that I compete against. And I know that like, I have a long career ahead of me if that's what I want to do. And it's just about slowly like improving and being better. And like knowing that this year we didn't have any major championships. So it's been like a good time to trial things in competition or like if I was having a bad competition or a bad few competitions, knowing that like, it's not the end of the world and like using those as like learning tools mentally like if everything's not going the way you want it like you can use that as a learning tool so I guess that's been good but like my goal I guess for the remainder of my career like I'd love to win a Paralympic medal I have a world championship medal to my name from 2019 so like I'd love to be at back up on the podium again at more major championships hopefully a few more Paralympics, but I don't have, I guess, like a distance in mind that like when I decide to hang up my blade and spikes that I want to have jumped a certain distance. The girls that I compete against, a few of them have jumped over six metres. So like that's the target to aim for. But like you just never know. On the day of competition as well, like someone can jump five metres 20 and win a bronze medal, which is what I did in um, Dubai in 2019, but come Tokyo in 2021, five metres 11 was only seventh place. So like anything can happen on the day. And it's just about knowing that like what you've done in the lead up to the games, like whilst you're competing against other girls, you can't control how far they jump or their performances. So you just need to focus on like what you can do and how far you can jump. And I guess like putting on the green and gold, I'm always so proud to wear that. And even like after I competed in Tokyo, like yes, placing less than what I did in Rio was kind of a shock, but like I couldn't have jumped any further on that day. And that was my best. And like putting on the green and gold representing Australia is like the best feeling in the world. And after I competed, got back on the bus to head back to the village, one of our team coaches just asked me to like describe how I was feeling like out on the track in the stadium while I was competing. And I just looked at him and said, it's the best. Like, that's all I had. Like, it's the best feeling in the world. And no matter the result or the position or the medal or the placing or the distance, like, 
the feeling of being there is the best in the world. And I guess like I could have turned that situation around and been like, look, it was pretty average jump of me. No, I'm better than that. Seventh place is probably not what I was expecting when I went there. But like seventh place once again was like the best placing that I could do on the day and something that I was super proud of. Yeah, that's fantastic. The Tokyo Paralympics finally saw Paralympians get the financial recognition that you deserve. What else do you want to see to continue this awareness and and I guess the momentum as well from here on for Paralympians? I guess like looking back on Paralympic movement itself, like 2012 was probably the pivotal point in the Paralympic movement where people sort of realised that, hey, Paralympians are just as equal to the Olympians. Um, Like they were getting media coverage and things like that. And the London Paralympics did a really good job of making Paralympians like equal to our Olympic counterparts, but there's still such a long way to go. I guess even like you turn on the TV and all the ads are involving our Olympians and whilst they do an incredible job, like the Paralympians put just as much hard work, time and effort into getting to the Paralympic Games as our Olympians do. And like there's still that gap when you look at sponsorship, media opportunities, even funding, like it's not equal just yet. And Paralympians have such an incredible story and so many pearls of wisdom to share just like our Olympians do. And whilst we have separate games and competitions, it's no fault of our own. Like we can't physically combine them like the Commonwealth Games because it's just not logistically possible. And I know that most people do prefer to sit down and watch the Paralympic Games and hear Paralympian stories and see them overcome the challenges that they have. So there is still like such a gap to be able to bridge to like equality between both the Olympians and Paralympians. But that also goes like in everyday life, there is still that gap between an able-bodied person and a person with a disability. So I think it's always going to be a fighting battle to be considered equal, but do know that it is slowly getting better. Yeah, I feel like I noticed the shift after Tokyo and uh, I mean, obviously, this is a personal opinion, um, but I, I do find I found that, you know, everyone was home, you know, in the lockdowns, wherever you were in the world. But it just gave us the chance to see you guys compete as well and hear your stories, which, like you said, is so, um, so important and so inspirational to hear. Yes, the challenges, the resilience from it though as well and um yeah hearing your stories it's it's such an important part of sport yeah absolutely i think tokyo like with everyone being at home in lockdown like not going out during the day like the only thing that could take your mind off of that was flicking on the tv and whether it was the olympics or the paralympics and like for me as an athlete it made me realize that like what i do is so much more than running and jumping in the sandpit from I spoke to a lot of people after the games and like they were tuning in supporting athletes most of them have never watched sport in their life but just absolutely loved it and sport has the power to like bring people together and create that good feeling and in that time take people's mind off what was a really crappy time and like by me throwing myself into the sandpit if that took five minutes out of someone's day to not remind them that they were sitting at home while everything was going on in the world, like that makes my job so much more rewarding. And like, you never know the impact that you really have 
on everyone else around you. Like whilst I joke, I run and jump into a sandpit for a living. I know that has such a big impact on so many people around the world. But whilst I'm just doing like what I absolutely love, like my intention isn't to bring a bit of light and entertainment into the lounge rooms of people. Like when they're watching the Paralympics, my intention is to go out and compete the best that I can. And like knowing that I had that impact and so did the rest of the Paralympic team in so many lounge rooms around Australia during that time is really special. Incredibly special. It was it was fantastic to see. Um, and speaking of seeing those out getting out there and um, recently, well, you, you've taken part in the AFW's Future of Fashion show, which you look stunning, by the way. It was spectacular. <laughs> How important to you is it then to also bring disability to mainstream media and ensure that people with a disability are seen and represented? It's so important. Like my dream of being a Paralympian started because I saw the Paralympics on the TV. And just because you have a disability doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be a Paralympian or you're going to be a Paralympian. And like people with a disability have the same goals and dreams as their able-bodied counterparts. And there's many young girls and boys who dream of being a model when they're older. But what society has shown us over the years of how a model should look, how a model um, needs to wear clothes, what their body type should be, like has always been so set into like these two lines of needs to be this, this and this, and that's how you're going to be a model. Whereas I think now more than ever, people are realising that everyone kind of needs to be seen in media and especially in the fashion world as well. Like I never dreamed of walking in a fashion show in my entire life. And even now I'm like, did that really actually happen? Like it wasn't <laughs> something where I was like, I'm going to go to the Paralympics and I'm going to walk in Australian Fashion Week. That wasn't like part of my plan. But like to be able to do that and show, hey, someone who looks a little bit different can have these goals and dreams and be a model and be at the forefront of fashion. Like that's where we're headed these days. Like I think gone are the days of the perfect looking person needs to be the model and on the billboards. People like being able to see someone who just looks like them, whether that is someone with a disability or it's someone with the same clothing size or hair colour or haircut or just anything other than like what society thinks should be seen on those things. And I think we're slowly improving and like fashion week really showed that having me um, wheelchair users as well. Um, amputees just showing that, hey, people with a disability, one, enjoy fashion just like anyone else. But hey, if that's what you want to do, like you too can walk in Australian Fashion Week. Like I think for so long society has been like people with a disability won't be able to do things like that or they're told, hey, because you've got one leg, like you're not going to be an elite sports person or you're not going to be a model. Like you look different to what you should. But people with a disability have the same goals and dreams as everyone else like whilst many of them don't want to be Paralympians and probably a lot of them don't want to be models at Australian Fashion Week they might want to be doctors teachers nurses like I think now more than ever society is realizing that like people with a disability are kind of entering the mainstream media and that's what everyone loves to see someone just like them out there doing what they love Exactly. And it's so, so important, that representation. And like you said, we're finally moving forward with that. It's, it's, we're not just seeing a certain size or 
um, a certain look or a certain color or um, you know just able-bodied it's really so important that we move forward with um, yeah representing all because we're all here and we all have different goals and dreams and when we're able to see ourselves in someone else doing it those those goals can become a reality for us and that's so important um so it's great work that you're doing and yeah like i said you you looked spectacular (laughs) what has being a paralympian given you the opportunity to do to do outside of sport aside from walking down a runway i guess like it's given me the opportunity to be able to share my story reach out to people who are in similar situations to what my family was back in the day like we didn't have facebook and instagram back then to be able to just google someone realize that they're pretty similar to you and send them a message on facebook like these days that is an option there's so many groups around the world who are like just for fibula hemimilia or people with limb loss and limb difference like to be able to connect with someone who's going through like similar to what I went through or especially like families with young kids who are like weighing up like to amputate their daughter or son's foot and so concerned with like what the rest of their kid's life is going to look like. Like most parents, they're so worried. And then throw in on top of that, like having one leg, just like being able to help people through that. But then also like the opportunity to like connect with so many people around the world meet new people travel the world like when i started athletics like i did it because i loved it not for like walking down fashion week and being on tv commercials and things like that and like from being a paralympian those opportunities have opened up but they're so like influential into helping other people and young kids feel seen and feel represented and like i get to do what i love every day and i don't do it for the glory and like the fun things that I get to do on the side, like they're just a bonus or the icing on the cake. But like they've become really important to me and been able to show the world that like, hey, despite having some sort of difference or uniqueness, like I'm still able to do just what anyone else can do. Yeah, brilliant. Sarah, tell us about your work with Lifeline. Yeah, so I'm an ambassador for Lifeline um, here in Canberra. I joined the Lifeline family around 2019 and I guess like now more than ever Lifeline has become so important in society. Like the past few years everyone has battled their own battle and Lifeline has kind of been the one constant thing in a lot of people's lives where they can turn to when they're in their time of crisis or time of need. They don't feel comfortable talking to family or friends or someone close to them or they don't have that support system. They're able to pick up the phone and call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And for me, like, it's just about bringing to light a topic that people, like, kind of shy away from. Like, suicide and mental health is not something that had been spoken about a lot before COVID. Like, everyone knew it kind of existed, but no one wanted to talk about that vulnerable community, which is pretty similar to people with a disability, like it was always shied away from, you didn't want to talk about someone's disability in case you might offend them. And so like, for me, it's so important to be able to share my story, but also raise awareness, not only for people with a disability, whose disability might be physical, but also people who are struggling mentally or need that extra help. Lifeline is always there and such an incredible 
organisation and I'm so lucky to be a part of that organisation here in Canberra who are the greatest, who are there to support our Canberra community through all the hard times and challenges that we've had over the past few years. And, like, I'm lucky to be a part of that organisation and help them raise awareness and raise money to be able to support people who need it the most. Like, I'm so lucky that I've got such a great support system around me who when I am struggling or I do need help, I can turn to one of them and they're always right there to either pick up the phone, give me a hug when I need it, whereas I know that's not the case for a lot of people and Lifeline are like my extended family. They're the people who are there for other people and it's incredible the work they do. So I'm very lucky to be a part of that. Yeah, that's so, excuse me, that is so special. And, And yeah, like you said, so important. It's so prevalent these days although in saying that i i guess it's because it's more um there is more awareness around that <clears throat> which is so important um and yeah the, the work that they do is so incredible and like you said not everyone has a support network you know it's so important to be able to talk to someone be heard and um yeah it is incredible work and and so important and so thank you for for bringing more awareness to mental health and showing that there are organizations out there like this that can help yeah absolutely i think it's so important like we're all like fighting our own battles whether it's like mental or physical and like we all have our struggles like mine might look a little bit more obvious to someone else but like the person sitting next to me maybe fighting their own thing and need that help and support from Lifeline. And I think it's just so important, like, if you are struggling or you're not feeling like yourself, like, reach out and ask for help. Like, someone always cares, whether that is someone close to you or I can guarantee you if you pick up the phone and call Lifeline, the person on the end of the phone call cares about your health and well-being and are there to support you in whatever way you need. And I think that's really important, knowing that there's, like, no shame in saying, I'm not okay and I need help. And I think people are starting to realise that more and more that like we all go through something in our life that makes us struggle, that makes us feel sad or lonely. And like Lifeline are the people that are constantly there if you don't want to turn to someone close Mm. to you. Yeah, and I think an important thing that you did mention is while it may be obvious to some people uh, of their struggles, actually it might not be obvious at all that someone is actually struggling either <clears throat> so yeah knowing that there is an organization out there that is open for you to talk with and it, to my understanding you you remain or can remain anonymous yeah though like you don't have to mention your name where you from anything like that like it's as anonymous as you want it to be you can pick up the phone and say whatever you'd like to them and They'll be there to support and guide you through like whatever you're struggling with. Yeah, amazing. Wonderful. Sarah, what is next for you? I mean, we've got Paris in 2024. What what do you see in your future? I guess like the Paralympic Games, they're coming up a lot faster (laughs) than what I'd like to think. Like it's 2022 now. In two years' time, like just be about ready for Paralympic Games. That's what happens when the cycle between the last one becomes a little bit longer. Um, but next year we have our World Championships there in Paris. So it'll be a nice warm-up for yeah. the Paralympic Games to head over there and compete. 
And then obviously the following year we have the Paralympics and then the following year we have another world championship. So it's a very busy few years on the international stage. So I guess they're like the biggest main international competitions for me. It'll be a lot of work here in Australia competing locally. Um, But I guess for me it's just about going out there and jumping as far as I can or further than I have before over the next few years. So it's exciting to have all those things coming up, but it's also been kind of nice this year to have a quieter year or a year off big major competitions to be able to prepare for that and mentally refresh and then go again for the next three years. Yeah, brilliant. Sarah, if people want to follow your journey and see where you're at, how can they find you? Um, You can follow my Instagram. It is Sarah underscore Welsh 14. So you can keep up to date with what I'm doing at training or just in everyday life there or get in touch with me if you've got any questions or anything like that after this pops out as well. And I have to say, you, you've you got a really good sense of humour as well. I've seen, I've seen some of your posts, some funny facials and, and even your, um, your Christmas uh, family <laughs> portrait as well with uh, your old COVID um, sanitised and toilet paper. So you're fun to watch and follow along. <laughs> definitely put that in the show notes Sarah one last message to finish us off what is your message to young athletes who feel different from others who want to play professional sport and become a professional athlete I guess it's just never let anyone tell you that you can't do something because you're different if you want something so much you want to play professional you want to put on the green and gold or you want to put on your local club's colours and go out there and throw a footy or whatever it is with your team and your friends, like, do it. Don't let someone tell you, oh, you've got one leg, you can't do that. Show them that you can. I guess for me, I've worked so hard my entire life to prove to people that despite having one leg, I could do that or I could be the best athlete in the world. And, like, I've had so many incredible people support me along the way, but it's also been a lot of my own drive and determination to want to be the best. And so... I've never once let anyone who may have sat on the sidelines, who may have doubted whether I could get to a Paralympics or get to a world championships or win a medal at a world championships. I've never let what they've said to me, like take me back and maybe think that maybe I couldn't do that. If anything, I've kind of used it as a driving force. Like having that doubt in someone's mind, you kind of want to prove to them that you can do it. So no matter what, no matter what your dream is, no matter what your goal is, never let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Just show them that you can. Yes, absolutely. Sarah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time and all the best for your future events. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Sarah Walsh, incredible para-athlete and human being doing incredible things. If you loved this episode, please share it with your friends, review this episode and subscribe to the channel because it all helps this podcast go strong. Thank you for pressing play on this video today. Have the best day, week, month and year. And here's to a world of bodies built better.